Hello and welcome back to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, UCL's award-winning podcast all about the pandemic and the groundbreaking research from the UCL community. I'm Vivian Parry, I'm a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna, and I'm here to bring you, well, the whole story. Now, one thing that we've heard time and time again on this podcast is that coronavirus doesn't affect everyone equally. Individuals, neighbourhoods, businesses, whole countries. So whilst the UK and US have been able to vaccinate over half their population so far this year, the virus has been having a devastating impact in other parts of the world. Today, we're going to be talking about the current crisis in India, their deadly second wave, and what can be done to help. I'm joined today by Dr. Vagish Jain, an NIHR Academic Clinical Fellow in Public Health Medicine at the UCL Institute for Global Health. During the pandemic, Vagish has been working on the COVID-19 response at Public Health England, and last year was awarded the Bennett Prospect Prize for Early Career Policy Research. My second guest is Dr. Shikta Das, an honorary lecturer at the Institute for Cardiovascular Science. Shikta is a genetic epidemiologist, we love those, and is currently working for C4X Discovery, a drug discovery company on diabetes and neurocognitive disorders. She's been raising awareness of the impact of COVID-19 in India and has spoken about the situation with her father, who lives in India, on Radio 4's Today programme. So, Shikta, we have to start off by asking, how is your dad? Thank you, Vivian. My dad is doing well at the moment. He has had an episode of coronavirus, but he is fine. It was in the mild form because he was vaccinated. Fantastic. Very good to hear. So now, having made sure that your dad's okay, let's start by getting the big picture. Shikta, just tell us about the second wave. When did it start and why did we think it's been so deadly? Vivian, I think we have been looking at the data and when I say we, it was mostly what we see in the media. And we observed that, you know, since the start of February, there has been some information coming through that the number of cases had started to increase. I think one of the biggest reasons we see this second wave was uh, complacency. And we know that, you know, the second wave happened after a long gap and India really enforced the first national lockdown in the first wave very well. We had relatively low fatality rate and hence there was almost a sense of uh, premature victory over the virus, which was celebrated. And this really led to the lax public health messaging. There was no preparedness for this new variant. Big gatherings were allowed. There were sort of political failings and most importantly, lack of preparation among officials was very clear. An important contributor could be also this new variant, which is more transmissible. And of course, the super spreader events did not really help. We know there were big election rallies. Kumbh Mela, which is a religious event, was allowed. Nothing was done to dissuade people congregating in large numbers. And this undoubtedly increased the transmission. And I must add that the healthcare system really collapsed, you know, under the second wave. 
what we really observe is that the oxygen supply failed massively short of the demand. Hospitals were publishing details on the remaining oxygen supply in terms of ours. And this is a very dire situation in such a big country. To, to have, to lack of, you know, number of beds, oxygen, drugs, these are terrifying and concerning situations. Given the experience we have in UK, we know that from the first wave, saving the health infrastructure is a key event and key point, you know, which we had really focused on. Whereas when you look at India, it has underfunded health services, you know, with, with just 1% of GDP going towards the public health financing. And that is very much exposed at the current moment. Let me come to Vagish and ask you, you know, wearing your public health England hat, how do you see this as someone of Indian heritage sitting in London having experienced COVID here? I'm really worried. And I think really what we've seen in India is is a warning to the rest of the world about what can happen if, as Shikta brilliantly summarised, you really take your foot off the pedal and become complacent and let things like gatherings happen in a population that is still susceptible, i.e. not immune. And I mean, just to build on the point really on the new variants, because I think this is an important part of what's happening in India. So the B1617, which is the variant that is kind of commonly referred to as the Indian variant now, is in about 40 countries. And it's really quite rapidly displacing some of the other variants seen in other states in, in India. So preceding this variant, that one of the most common variants in many states was the one that was originally found in Kent. And of course, we know that that is 50 to 60% more transmissible than the kind of wild type original coronavirus. And so the fact that that is being displaced is a cause of concern. Uh, we're seeing that in this country as well, in the UK. And it does suggest that a big part of why this is happening now is down to kind of the virological features of this specific strain. And obviously combined with easing off social restrictions, mass gatherings, as has been mentioned, and, and festivals that have kind of occurred earlier this year, uh, all of these things have, have led to quite a worrying situation in India. And from our perspective in the UK, obviously, there's many things that we can do. I want to get on, if I may, to that in more detail a, a little later. But one of the things that's particularly difficult for India, which, you know, if you've not been to India, it has both the best and the worst of healthcare in that you have some of the most ritzy, well-supplied and well-resourced hospitals probably in the world. But then you also have a total breakdown of healthcare in other parts of India. And the issue with lockdown in India it's not as easy as just saying everybody's got to go home because there are a lot of migrant workers. There were lots of issues when, with very little notice, people were asked to stop working and go back to their homes because many people had to travel hundreds of miles. And when you have a lot of people living in very difficult situations, lockdown is not that easy, is it? Absolutely right, Vivian. It's it's not going to be possible to have a, a extended lockdown based on what the big population of daily wages are in India. And you're absolutely right in suggesting that there needs to be more effective communication coming from government about how to manage COVID in terms of, you know, mild and moderate symptoms at home. What we have also observed is this unequal uh, healthcare system. So it has been pre 
pretty, pretty much dominated by the private hospitals and there's not much safety net of work. They have to survive as well as protect their loved ones. And that is what we are observing in the numbers currently. We know that when these migrants will be going back home, they will be taking the coronavirus with them to the smaller cities, to the rural areas. And that's when the numbers will increase in terms of infection as well as death. And that has not been captured at the moment. You know, what you just see in terms of numbers are very much big cities. And that was going to be a problem when you are doing epidemiological modeling or undertaking any kind of modeling to come up with substantial conclusions. And my worry is that really downplaying the threat of the virus at this stage will not do us any good and it may lead to further waves. It is a very difficult thing to ask people who perhaps live on the streets or who live in very difficult circumstances, there is no isolation, is there? It's not possible. No. In terms of when you look at the household structure and also the uh, behavioural issues, you notice how the setup is so multifactorial. People live in big joint families. There is no space to isolate. Also, the information, the misinformation about the virus One thing which commonly came out of India was this almost fake news or misinformation, this false belief that the healthier and the younger people are less susceptible to severe symptoms or even death. And the disease itself is not very serious. And I would say that this was very much on hold in the early part of the pandemic of the second wave. And that really led to people believe that they can continue going out without masks, without social distancing. This information had to be really provided by the government, which came from credible sources such as PHE, NHS. And one has to inform the public, you know, why these measures were necessary for stopping this wave further. And this is where I felt that the complacency was noticed, you know, in the second wave. Because for Gish, in the beginning of this outbreak in India, the first wave, India was congratulating itself on really a very low death rate per 100,000 population. And I wonder why there was that low death rate at that stage. Was it about the variant that was circulating then? Was it something to do with climate? Because, you know, we talk a lot about climate as perhaps something that's influencing the spread of coronavirus around the world, as it does with flu, for example. What was it that was protective in that first wave? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think really that there is a kind of robust answer to that, that that anyone has. And it's a multifactorial thing, of course. And as you mentioned, the previous variant likely wasn't as infectious as what's currently circulating in India. That, That definitely played a big role. As far as climate goes, I think most of the evidence that looks kind of across countries and compares different longitudes, latitudes and climate, et cetera, it is not particularly convincing i.e. it suggests that there may be a a small role for climate and seasonality as we'd expect with other infections like influenza but really compared to your other factors like you know whether you have a large amount of social contact climate really does play quite a small role and certainly we would have expected a a bigger rise in cases over december and january in india if if that was the case so why was india 
kind of not as badly affected in the first wave. It's difficult to say exactly why, but I think part of it is the variant and a, a lot of it was likely that people were much more compliant with social restrictions, mask wearing and, you know, isolation and the rest of it during the first wave when there was this general perception of fear of the unknown of uncertainty and different as Shikta mentioned a very different kind of communication strategy coming out of central and state governments which has changed in the previous few months. So during this time and given what was happening elsewhere in the world particularly in in Europe and indeed particularly in the UK I imagine that scientists in India were jumping up and down saying there's another wave coming. Why did that have no effect? I would say that, uh, as with most kind of big decisions in this pandemic, there was not a homogenous view from experts. And that's because there is a large amount of uncertainty. So there were many public health experts who were clamoring for more widespread social restrictions and more care in reopening society, etc. But really, the influence of that was quite limited. And we've seen that in other countries like Brazil, where initially one of the ministers of health resigned because he felt he wasn't being taken seriously. And throughout the world, really. So this influence of kind of political leadership and decision making. And where does this sort of epidemiologist and, you know, the health economy, and these uh, the range of experts involved, where do they sit in terms of influencing? And, and the, the issue in India is that we do have quite a system that is, is heavily influenced by politics, not just that there are a range of other concerns that maybe are not as big concerns in, in the West for various reasons, really. So, for example, in India, as you mentioned earlier, many people cannot isolate because, you know, 90% of the population are in, in, in the informal sector, for example. So the economic concerns, the concerns about kids staying off school and, you know, the social costs of continuing to be cautious are potentially different in different countries. And it, it's really up to political leaders to weigh all of that up and come to decisions. So, you know, I, I would say that the, the decision making on preventing the second wave or being more cautious was not simple. It was complex and multifaceted, but arguably there could have been more action taken and a a better and and more comprehensive voice for experts in those decisions. The possibility of actually avoiding the second wave is probably one that would be impossible in a country of the size of India. But preparation for a second wave definitely could have been much better. Shikta, what would you like to have seen done in preparation? It's a very good question, Vivian, and I think I was very early on, I suggested that, you know, the the only way out could have been if India had prepared better for the second wave by looking into hospital management logistics, supply chain issues with the vaccine, also with the prioritization, allocation of limited resources. We know we had problems with PPE, ICU beds oxygen, ventilators, even medication. This is coming very much from my epidemiological background, which is about reliable data collection. If we had a better data collection capturing system, we could have had a better analysis of the plan to stop this resurgence of the cases. This is where I really believe that not just India, but globally, we really have to emphasize now on better data collection for the pandemic use and also for other uh, infectious diseases. As you can see, it has really helped in making informed decision even in our country. In terms of public health messaging on physical distance, mask using in public places, or even explaining the airborne disease, This had to be widely disseminated. It had to come from a reliable source. 
you know, like a COVID task force, which government has set up and should have been more active in India. I think it really explains, you know, what the risks are for individual. Not much have been talked about the comorbidities in India and how to solve them. We know about the black fungus problem currently uh, ongoing. Just explain about black fungus. Or perhaps, Vagish, would you tackle what it is? Yes, I was going to suggest Vagish, actually. <laughs> so it's an infection, basically fungal infection called mucormycosis. So fungal infections typically happen if you're immunosuppressed for some reason. And so there's a, I've seen various theories about why this might be happening more commonly at the moment in India in sort of COVID patients as a complication. So one of the theories is that many people in India have diabetes. Much of that is undiagnosed, unfortunately. Not only is that increase your risk of COVID, but it can also, diabetes can suppress your immune system, essentially. And because of that, in combination with the fact that potentially people with COVID are now being given steroids, dexamethasone is an example of a steroid, that can further suppress your immune system. And there is this theory that that may be in part responsible for this fungal infection. One of the other theories is to do with the fact that this particular fungus is found in soil. And is there kind of some exposure, some you know natural herbal Ayurveda exposure that people are, are using, some reports of people applying particular things on, on the skin or whatever. Again, another theory that really hasn't been proven. And then the final thing is really to do with oxygen supply. So as oxygen is being supplied, there are various systems in the apparatus that there are concerns that maybe there's some opportunity for infection to spread through that process. We don't know exactly what's happening, and we actually don't know whether the proportion of those cases of mucomycosis are higher than we saw in the first wave. There are definitely more cases in absolute terms, but then there are many more COVID cases in absolute terms as well. So I think there's a lot more work to be done on really understanding that particular issue. So both of you were in the UK through January, Christmas and January, when our wave really exploded. And it must have been terrifying for both of you to see what was going on here and know that that was the fate for India. How did you both feel? Let's start with you, Shikta. Because your dad's a doctor, isn't he? Uh, yes, he is, Vivian. And it, it has been terrifying, if I can be honest. I have felt a mixture of grief, anger and helplessness, completely oscillating between waves of emotion currently because I feel quite powerless to do anything. When I observed the second wave here and the news about UK variant reaching India, I immediately called my mother and told them to prepare themselves with stocks of medication which they need for their uh, diabetes as well as high blood pressure. Both comorbidities quite significant for coronavirus. But, you know, as, as it usually goes, I, you know, completely felt on deaf ears. They were celebrating by this time and I was told that they had very high vitamin D content and they would not get a second wave. I again insisted in the beginning of March when I could read some news articles about the increased number of cases. And that's when actually my father started mobilizing things and he started observing people falling ill around him. One of the worst bad news came when the neighbor opposite died. A very, very close friend of my father. He lives just opposite to us. Uh, he's a very well-known person in the neighborhood. And it was quite a shock because everything unfolded within three days of him falling ill to him dying. And that really affected my parents uh, severely. I had to talk him out of it. And I had to explain that, you know, 
this is pandemic situation and being a doctor he should still follow physical distancing and masking and double masking in 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 india's case so it it has taken a toll over me to be honest it feels quite surreal and it's a stark contrast because my own situation in london here is very much going back to normal whereas i feel guilty that you know india is going to it, it has a long way to come to normality long way to go and how vagish how about you I think it's been really tough. So I actually was in India in January for a kind of family emergency and it's done a complete U-turn. So it, when I went in January, things were not too bad. I remember the state that I was in, there were maybe 40, 50 cases in the entire state in a day. And so there was a general perception, which I don't think is necessarily an unfair perception. The worst was over and that people, you know, with, with other needs, social, economic, etc. needs, people were ready to to kind of reintegrate. And unfortunately, that did lead, lead to people kind of dropping their guard. And, and so it has been very difficult watching India go from where it was, which was a good place to, to where it is now. And I don't, I don't necessarily think it was inevitable. There, there was a new variant, but you know, I think the very, the very fact that there's been a huge variation across states in India in terms of how bad this has become does demonstrate that there are various things, as Shikta mentioned, in terms of the health system, in terms of planning, in terms of messaging, various things that could have been done earlier and thankfully are being done now. And we're now, you know, starting to see a corner turn, hopefully, in terms of new cases every day. So we know that vaccination is important and I think that's a global effort and those are things that we need to think about globally. What's the more practical things that people perhaps in the UCL community could do? For instance, I was with a lot of healthcare scientists yesterday and they were talking about doing videos which would tell people in professionals in India what things they had learnt during COVID and what would be the best way to tackle things, things like proning and how to how to do that, what you could do, what pressures you could use in oxygen, all those kind of things. What else can we do? So Vivian, I think the one thing I have personally done is translate all the information which we were circulating from NHS and Public Health England. I have been translating those information in Hindi and disseminating it to India through a charity. As you mentioned, this particular South Asian charity has also translated uh, a lot of hospital management information from clinicians here in UK uh, with their experience and have um, organized webinars for Indian doctors and clinicians to learn from their experience. As an epidemiologist, I have tried uh, using COVID task force in the Royal Statistical Society to help modeling with Indian scientists, you know, giving them our experiences in terms of modeling and, and how to understand the data more clearly and also have policies around it. And I'm feeling that, you know, a lot of UCL scientists could help in this particular modeling aspect because we are world best. We have gone through this pandemic before and I think that would be very, very useful for Indian scientists. Vagish, what kind of things would you suggest? I think everything Shikta said is, is really fantastic and needs to happen. And of course at UCL we do have strengths in kind of research and education and we should be looking to collaborate with partner institutions in India to, to see what help we can provide. The only thing I would say is that we have to be careful in kind of assuming that there is some knowledge deficit, even for things like clinical management. There's a huge amount of expertise in India itself. And so we can obviously contribute to that. But I think in the short term, really what's needed is the kind of supply, the logistics to give them the capacity to do what they can do. Part of that is has to be through government. So the, the Foreign Office 
has obviously been sending supplies to India, been very engaged in this kind of process. But I think there is more that that can be done through through policymakers, through those of us working kind of at that research policy interface to help inform those plans and to help kind of direct resources and allocate resources to where they are most needed, most urgently. And of course, part of that is through the COVAX facility, through the WHO to help distribute vaccines. And there's certainly more that we can be doing as a country and, you know, as a university to feed into those kind of policy processes. And and that, I think, really needs to be a priority in terms of short term, meeting the short term needs in India. I know that in the UK, the experience of Italian doctors was incredibly important at the beginning of, of the pandemic in explaining what were the best things to do. And actually, as you get more and more patients in, your options become ever more limited. So actually, the experience of others suddenly becomes both incredibly important and actually really comforting that you know others have done it and there is light on the other side. So I agree with what you said. And, and really, the key bit will be the recovery now. You know, once this kind of pool of susceptible individuals decreases, then there's a lot that we can do in the UK and from UCL and through collaboration with, with global bodies to really help India recover and build back and make sure that, you know, we prevent another wave happening in the future. Sheikh, a final word from you. My final word would be, Vivian, that this is a global problem. This is not just India's problem. And in the pandemic life course, we know that if it if this wave happens in India, it can spread quite easily, which what we are observing here. I would say another important issue, which nobody would ever consider being an Indian uh, myself, is mental health. I don't think anyone is even thinking in that term. So that is something we would have to work on in future with India. And as Vikesh correctly said, there will be issues further on which we can help with as well. Thank you both for coming today and uh, let's do all we can to help and just make sure that that message about this is a whole globe effort has been received. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges and edited by the lovely Keris Bradley. I was joined today by Dr. Vagish Chain and Dr. Shikta Das. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon for what will be our 50th edition. Bye for now.